and uh, I'm grateful to God for that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1 for the next couple of weeks as we uh, just do a, a short series kind of leading up to uh, Easter Sunday. We're going to be uh, just, uh, we kind of labeled this series Meditations on Christ, and, and our, our hope and prayer is that, that we all collectively uh, see Christ more clearly, and, uh, and we want, as we'll see this morning, uh, what we see of Christ to be shaped by the Scripture. And, uh, and the more I looked at the passage that we're, we're going to be reading this morning, which starts in verse 15, the more I realized I was going to preach one sermon on this passage, and, we, and really we could, you, you couldn't exhaust the depths of this passage. And, and I figured that for a series that we're calling Meditations on Christ, we should at least give it more than one uh, Sunday to work through. Um, but I, I would encourage you uh, to feast on this passage of Scripture. And, and so if that's grabbing a trustworthy commentary that's devotional, I would highly recommend Matthew Henry's commentaries and, and grabbing this, uh, this chapter, opening it up, opening a Matthew Henry commentary up and just working through it and feasting on it because to feast on it is to, to feast on Christ Jesus. And, uh, and so I, I would commend you do that because we really are only going to scratch the surface of this passage. And so, so let me read it, and then I'm going to give a, I'll pray, and then I'm going to give some context. And, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to approach the text this morning. I'm going to give some preliminary thoughts, um, and, and, and then we're going to do a survey of the, of the whole text. I'm not preaching the whole text this morning. I'll preach the, the rest of it next week, but I'm going to give a, a bit of a survey of the whole text this morning. And then I've just got two points that we'll spend time uh, fleshing out together. But, but this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Colossae, uh, starting in verse 15 here. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote these words. It says, he, speaking of Christ, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You that we can come again this morning and 
and spend some time in your word together as a church family. And God, while I'm not preaching this verse, I'm preaching it next week, but, but Lord, help, help the, 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 the reality of Christ making peace by the blood of His cross. Help that to just... Help that hit us in a fresh way, Lord. And Lord, help us to, to submit ourselves to Your Word and to have our thinking and our worship of You shaped by it. So Holy Spirit, help us. Help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to belabor this morning the historical context of this passage. And the reason why is, is because for the most part, it, it really is similar to the historical context that we have worked through as we went through our First Timothy series. The Apostle Paul is the author of the letter to the church of Colossae, to the, what we know as the book of Colossians. He was the author of the letter uh, to Timothy, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Ephesians. Uh, he's authored many of, of the epistles that we see in the New Testament. Um, but this church at Colossae was facing many of the same issues that the church at Ephesus uh, was facing. But in Pauline fashion, we have him also encouraging this church in the same way that we saw him encouraging the church of, of Ephesus. And he, he's encouraging them by exalting Christ to them. Right? That, that's, that's how he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them by drawing their attention to the sufficiency of Jesus. And, and we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks, but he's encouraging them this morning by helping them see the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And this letter was expected to be read amongst the gathered saints and to be passed to another church called Laodicea. And Laodicea also had some letter that they were going to give to uh, the church of Colossae here as well. And, so, and we see that in chapter 4, verse 16. It says, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from them. And and I show you this kind of stuff, and and as we're approaching the text this morning, I want us to see, I want to to impress a couple of things on us that that I I try to bring up pretty regularly. First, is that the the regular gathering of God's people for worship is critical. It's critical. It's it's where we primarily hear from God, right? To, To not have been gathered at one of these churches that received this epistle written by the hands of the Apostle Paul, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, would have been to miss hearing from God. Right? And, and if we're a congregation that believes that not only did, did the Spirit of God inspire the Word of God, but the Spirit of God preserves the Word of God, and to hear the Word of God read, to hear the Word of God rightly exposited, rightly preached, as, as the, the Reformers would say, would, would be to hear from God Himself. And we want to hear from God. And so we come this morning as God's gathered church is the bride of Christ 
to hear from Him from His Word, right? And, and, it, and it helps us to think again, not as... It, and, and certainly we're individual Christians as we're listening to this, but even truer than that is that we are a corporate body, right? We're, we're the bride of Christ. And so the reg, regular gathering of God's people for worship is critical. We see that in the nature of the, these letters. Read this letter here, then pass it to this church. This church has a letter that I wrote them as well, and they're going to pass it to you whenever they get done reading that too. Second thing, just as we're approaching this, I want us to see that what we wrestle with is nothing new. Right? What we wrestle with is nothing new. We're influenced by pagan ideologies. We can be dominated by our own sins. We can doubt the sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We can despair. Right? All of these things were obvious issues in the early church, and based on the content of these epistles, it was such a common thing in local churches that Paul saw the relevance of what he wrote to one church to go to another church, right? There's nothing new. There's no unique struggle. We're unique personalities created in the image of God, but what we face this side of eternity as it relates to, to, to our own sin struggles and, and to those things that can tempt us to doubt the sufficiency of Jesus, there's nothing new. So a couple of, those are a couple of preliminary things just for us to think through and, and see as we're approaching the text. But, but let's observe the passage. And I, and, and I would encourage you, look, grab, you know, if you have your Bible, open it up, lay it out in your lap. I, I just want to show you some things that maybe aren't so obvious if we're just reading it through quickly. But, but look at your Bible with me, and, and let's note how Paul's theme here it, it really is the supremacy of Christ, which is to say that Christ is above all, right? Christ is above all. But if we're observing the text, right, verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation, right? Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and we'll talk about what that means in a, in a moment. I just want you to see it. Verse 16, by him, by Christ, all things were created, the second part of verse 16, all things were created through Him, through Christ, and for Him, for Christ. Verse 17, He is before all things. Second part of verse 17, in Him all things hold together. Verse 18, that in everything... He might be preeminent. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God dwells. And then verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. Right? The, the, the rep, repetition of the Apostle Paul here, it, he, it clues us into what he's getting at, doesn't it? Right, his repetition, and even, even poetic rhythm, if you will, is telling us, pay attention. Right, really internalize what I'm saying. This is significant. This is why I'm writing to you. Right? Christ Jesus is over all. 
He's over all. And, and if that's too vague for us, that word all, and in the New Testament, we see the word all, depending on the context, used in different ways. But if that's too vague for us, the Apostle Paul fleshes out what he means when he says all by, through the rep, repetition. Right? Christ has all authority. He has all authority in heaven. He has all authority on earth. He's over those powers that seek to topple his kingdom. He's over those lesser gods, including wealth, that we like to settle for, that we are led astray by. He's over the circumstances that seem insurmountable to us. He's the Lord of our home. He's the Lord over our church. He's the Lord of the government. He is over everything. He's supreme. He's supreme over our sufferings. He's supreme over our sins. He's supreme over our trials. Christ over all. Christ over all. And if you don't take anything else away from the sermons for the next two weeks, come away, come away with a high view of Christ, which is to say, come, come away with a proper view of Christ. Our glorious Savior is above all, and He's worthy. Right? He's worthy. He's so worthy of our affection. He's so worthy of our devotion. He's so worthy of our worship, of our very lives. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus, we're going to get into the text, okay? I've given a, a little bit of, this is the high view, this is a theme, this is what kind of Paul's addressing as we're, we're thinking through this letter and really just looking at this short paragraph or two of the letter. But if you're taking notes as we get into the text, we want to see that Jesus is the only acceptable image of God and we can truly see him. Right? Jesus is the only acceptable image of God and we can truly see him. And let me just say on the onset, if you haven't attended Chris's class, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, it's by God's providence has paired really well, I think, with what we've been working through even over the last couple of weeks. And, and, uh, and if you're interested in seeing and savoring and just sitting in who God is for us in Christ. Like, go to that class before our, our service. It is very soul-nourishing. But we see Jesus is the only acceptable image of God, and we can truly see Him. Verses 15 and verse, uh, or verse 15 and verse 19, right? He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, if you drop down, for in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, right? Christ is supreme because Christ is God. Christ is supreme because Christ is God. He is eternally God. He didn't become God, right? Christ is eternally God. And, and this means that His image matters, right? If Jesus Christ is eternally God, it means that His image matters. His image matters. How we see him matters. And as Christians, we should be asking ourselves, how can we see Christ accurately? How can we see Christ clearly? Which implies that there are ways that we can look at him that are distorted. Right? There's ways that we can look at him that are distorted. How can we look at Jesus Christ accurately? And in what ways is the image of God being distorted in our lives? Right? Jesus Christ is God in flesh. He's truly man. He's truly God. But his imaging of God, his imaging of God isn't the same as our imaging 
of God. Okay, not, not even on our best day does that, is that a correlation for us. Christ being eternally God and becoming, <clears throat> through his incarnation, a man means that he is the exact representation of the Father. Christ is the exact representation of the Father. To see him, right, to, to look upon his face is to see God. It's to see God. John chapter 1, verse 14 and the Word, and as Christians, we, we understand Logos there. We know that, that John is getting at something, right? John is really impressing upon us both the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And the Word in Christ, that's what he's saying, became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us, and get this, and we beheld His glory. Right? The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, <clears throat> full of grace and truth. Right? John here, the Apostle John, who penned this under the inspiration of the Spirit, he, he perfectly harmonizes with our, with our text this morning from the Apostle Paul. Of course he does, because the Holy Spirit inspired both of these authors, right? But Jesus, who's eternally the Son of God, he put on flesh in the incarnation in those in the first century, but particularly, really, only his disciples Saul beheld his glory. Now we can think, wow, people in the first century, they saw Jesus with their eyes. Incredible, incredible, right? And we may begin to grow. I remember years ago, I took a a trip about 15 years ago. I spent a few weeks in in Israel, and I remember going to these different places in Israel and, uh, and, and hearing, you know, Jesus may have touched this. You know, he, he may, when in reality, right, Christ touched everything because he created everything by the word of his power, right? But, but, the, uh, but I remember wanting to just touch, man, let, let me just touch what he touched. Let me be around what he was around, right? It, it, was, it was emotionally stirring to me to be able to do something like that. And I, and I think back, you know, when I'm reading the, the Gospels, the four Gospels, I think, man, these guys got to see Christ with their eyes, right? And, and, and we may begin, if we think about that, we could begin to grow sad right? that, that we, we didn't have that experience, if you will, right? Jesus in his humanity is, is now seated at the right hand of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Right? We, we don't see Jesus with our eyes. In fact, what we're left with is it relates to his looks, is knowing this through the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had, and here we go, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, right? no beauty that we should desire him. Right? That's what we've got as it relates to his humanity here. Right? And the physical appearance of Jesus was nothing from our standpoint, anything that, that, that would make us desire him. In his humanity, he, he's nothing to look at. He's nothing to look at. And this being the only description of Christ in his humanity shows us that while his humanity matters, significant, right? It has salvific ramifications. What he actually looks like, his physical appearance, it doesn't matter, and I would even add, could be a stumbling block. Could be a stumbling block. 
God told Samuel not to look at the, and God told this right to, to Samuel going to, to see King David, he told Samuel not to look at the outward appearance of David because what David looked like was not indicative of who he really was, right? right? Man looks at the outside and looks are deceptive, looks are deceptive, but we should also see that the concern of the Holy Spirit is that we behold Jesus with eyes of faith. Right? That's, the, that's the concern of the Holy Spirit, that we behold Christ with eyes of faith, not with our physical eyes. In fact, I would venture to say that it's our physical eyes, just like Solomon with David, that could shield or prohibit us from seeing what we must see about the son of David, right? A messianic title for Jesus. So what do we have? What do we have? How do we see Jesus, the image of the invisible God, right? That, that should be our concern. And I want to bring it back for a moment to what John said about beholding the glory of Jesus, okay? In John chapter 1, what I read just a moment ago, he used that word glory, and he used the word dwelt, okay? He used glory, and he used dwelt, which the word dwelt means tabernacle, right? It means tabernacle. Christ tabernacled among us in his humanity, and he enabled sinful man to behold his glory. If in the Old Testament the glory of God was in the tabernacle, right, in the, in the Holy of Holies, there's something significant about Jesus and his humanity tabernacling among men. When he died, if you remember the account, when he died, the, the temple to the Holy of Holies, the curtain to the temple of the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom, right? There's no need for a temple. Never will be a need for a temple again. And I want us to see that Christ dwelling, Christ tabernacling among us, enabled us with eyes of faith, not physical eyes, to behold His glory. Right? Think about that for a moment. Jesus, before He ascended, He told His disciples that it was better for Him to physically go away because the Holy Spirit of God would come in and dwell believers, right? John chapter 16, verse 7. Right? Jesus said us having the indwelling Holy Spirit would be better, right, than him physically, Christ physically being here. Furthermore, he didn't just give us the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. We have the full revelation of God. We have the completed canon of Scripture, nothing to be added, nothing to be taken away. Right? And according to Christ, and just by what we see the New Testament writers emphasize by Jesus Christ, we should see that we are in a better position, we are in a clearer position to actually see Christ Jesus, to, to behold His glory, to see Him in the way that matters, that eternally matters. His tabernacling, Christ coming in the flesh, made that possible made God knowable to us. And God has ordained it so that our picture of Jesus is colored by Holy Spirit-inspired words. Right? Our picture of Jesus should be colored by Holy Spirit-inspired words. We can behold Him. In fact, it's the words of the Holy Spirit that bring us closer to Christ, that brings Christ into focus and conforms us into Christ's image, right? If Christ is the image of the invisible God, 
We should, as Christians, desire to have His image shaped by what is inspired by God. And we need the Spirit and the Word for that. We're temples of the Spirit, and we have the completed, preserved revelation of God. This is how we see Christ. This is how we see Christ. And we also see that phrase, if you're looking at the text, we see that phrase, firstborn of creation. Firstborn of creation. We see that in verse 15. And then firstborn from the dead, we see in verse 18, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week. But this phrase is used in several places of Scripture. Most notably, we see it in Romans 8, 29. We see it in Revelation 1, 5. We see it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. That Christ is where humanity and deity meet. Christ isn't the firstborn. And again, if we're coloring this image of Christ for us, right, this is what's significant about us taking in this word firstborn here. But Christ isn't firstborn in the sense that he had a starting place, right? In fact, Paul is using the the firstborn of creation to say that Christ has no beginning. He's actually making the opposite point of perhaps what we would think that he's making. He's saying that Christ is before. Before what? Before everything. He's before everything, right? It's figurative speech to denote special status, to denote supremacy, supremacy, But Christ is firstborn in that He's more human than we've ever been. All right, Christ is more human than we've ever been. He's what we should have been. He's what we should have been. He's truly human, and He's deserving, fully deserving of the inheritance of eternal life, the inheritance that the first Adam squandered, that the first Adam forfeited. Christ is deserving of it. He's worthy of it. Right? All the blessings of the Father, Christ has received, right? And Christ has inherited it. And, and, and because of the Spirit of God in our lives, right, we share union with Jesus Christ, and thus we inherit the blessings of the firstborn. That, that was the Apostle Paul, you kind of use an ancient Near Eastern culture customs here. The firstborn inherited the blessings of the Father. Right? Christ inherited all those blessings from the Father because He was truly human. He was what we should have been. Again, what we should have been. He did what Adam, the first Adam, should have done. He slayed the dragon in the garden right? through His, li- through his humiliation, His life and His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His, exalt- his exaltation there. But because we, by the power of the Spirit, share union with Jesus Christ, we inherit the blessings as if we're the firstborn. That's crazy. That's crazy. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, the church, in Hebrews chapter 12, actually, verse 23, the the church is called the firstborn. Referring to us being co-heirs with Christ, something that we're utterly unworthy to be, but we are. We are. Man, I think of how undeserved, I think of how sinful I am and, and how unworthy I am to be a co-heir of Christ. Like, it, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling that the Lord would, would see Joey and would see my mess and all the worst parts of me. Some parts that my, my, I can't even discern myself. And that Christ would 
secure himself to me, eternally so, and that he would give me what is rightfully his in such a way that it's rightfully mine. Firstborn. It's glorious news. That for me brings Christ into better focus. Brings myself into better focus too, which we'll see more of next week. So first we see that Jesus, he's the only acceptable image of God and and we can truly see him with eyes of faith as one in Christ, with the Spirit of God indwelling us and with our Bibles open, we can see Jesus Christ. We can behold his glory. We also see as his image is colored for us by the Spirit. We see, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, Christ is creator, he's sustainer, he's owner, and he's over all things for his glory and our good. All right, Christ is creator, sustainer, owner, and over all things for his glory and for our good. Verse 16, for by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For by him, by Christ, all things were created. All things were created through, through Jesus Christ. Christ, who is the eternal Word of God, the Logos of God, was who the Father used, was who the Father used in creating everything, right? God spoke the world into existence. He used words. He used the Word, the Word who in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, through the virgin birth, became flesh, Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters, the third person of the Trinity, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, so the pre-incarnate Christ was active in creation. And Jesus being the creator necessitates the other things in the list that you just jotted down. In Christ, all things hold together. The second part of verse 17, right? Christ, he's the connective tissue, if you will for absolutely everything. Apart from Christ, there's nothing. There's nothing. Right? And I don't, I don't know if we, I don't, I don't get the significance of that. I can't even, I'm saying it and I can't even comprehend it. Apart from Christ, there's nothing. Nothing. We're not here. We're not here apart from Jesus Christ. First part of verse 3 in Hebrews chapter 1, the preacher of the Hebrews, he says, he, speaking of Christ, He's the radiance of the glory of God, and He's the exact imprint of His nature, right? That helps us solidify the first point, doesn't it? Christ is the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power, right? That word upholds there. If you're a word geek like me, it's in the present tense. It's in the present tense. It's not the past tense. It's in the present tense, right? It's ongoing. Christ carries. Christ bears the weight of the universe. Bears the weight of the universe. The universe is dependent upon Jesus. 
The universe is not self-sufficient, right? It didn't create itself out of nothing. Christ created it. Christ upholds it. And what does the universe include? What does it include? Our text in Colossians gives us a clear answer to that question, and I'll reframe it for us. Look at verse 16 again as I reframe it. The heavens do not exist apart from Jesus. If you're looking at verse 16, the heavens don't exist apart from Jesus. The earth does not exist apart from Jesus, which is to say that what is visible and what is uh, invisible doesn't exist apart from Jesus. And then we have this list here, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Collectively and contextually here, Paul's referring to the principalities, uh, the, the unseen spirit world. Similar phrasings in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which is another one of the Apostle Paul's letters. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, what we see, right? but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Even these invisible forces that, that are at work in the hearts and the motives of men only exists because Christ presently sustains them. It's the only reason that they exist. Christ's sustaining authority doesn't end at the level of, of, of demons. It doesn't end there. It's not a line drawn in the sand there in which some demon can say, your authority doesn't extend here, Jesus. They tremble. They tremble because they know who they're sustained by. Even those oppressive, tyrannical, evil, unseen forces in this world do not act independent of Christ. I I use this word already, but they are not self-sufficient. That belongs to God alone. That's why He's the I Am. No other other being can can claim that. I am am who I am. I am self-sufficient. They they didn't create themselves. They didn't create themselves. They can't sustain themselves. Self-sufficiency, sustaining oneself, that's an an incommunicable attribute of God, and He shares that with no one. Shares it with no one. Everything is dependent upon Him, even those that oppose Him. Even, even, even behind an individual who hates God, right? who, whose life has just been dominated by evil spiritual forces at work behind them and their unrighteousness suppressing truth, that it's the obvious reality that God exists. Even in their cursing God, they're taking a breath that was given to them by Him. They're breathing His air. But why? If we bring it back to the invisible forces at work, the evil, demonic, invisible forces, why? Paul says in verse 16, because everything was created for Him. Everything was created for Him. Now, this is difficult to wrap our minds around, isn't it? It's difficult for me to wrap my mind around 
But everything that exists, everything that the Lord has created and sustains exists only because it serves the good cosmic purpose of bringing Christ's glory. That's the answer to the why. And, and I get that we may, again, we're thinking about all the wickedness and the evil and the suffering in the world, all the oppression and chiefly spiritual oppression. And we ask, why does Christ sustain the forces that seek to overthrow his kingdom? Why? Why would he do that? I go back and I see that the glory of Christ is the answer. That's the answer. But baked into that answer is our good. It's our good. And Chris, I think you've been making that point really well uh, each week in, in the class. But baked into the glory of Christ, what's inseparable from the glory of Christ, and this is, this is the grace of Christ, is our good. The glory of Christ and our good are inseparable. And I want to remind us of that this morning, by, and I'm, I'm going to close us down by turning us to Matthew chapter 26. And if you have your Bibles, turn there with me, because I want us to see this in the Word of God clear, even, even more clearly than perhaps what we're even seeing it now. Verses 48, to, or yeah, verses 48 to 54. Because it's here that we read the account of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. Which, by the way, was no surprise to Jesus. Christ arrested in the night here. Starting with verse 48. It says, Now Christ's betrayer, his betrayer, had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seizing. Immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Do you imagine? We've done the same time and time again. That Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew a sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his ear. The one that would later deny him. But Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And this is key. Do you not know that I could now pray to my father and he would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? And then we get why he didn't do it. Verse 54. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it might happen thus? Here we see the glory of Christ. We see the sustaining power of evil forces, spiritual evil forces behind the betrayal of Judas, behind the mob in the night. And it only gets darker from there, as we know. And we see our good all wrapped up together there. Have you really considered that Christ could have called 12 legions of angels that is a lot of angels. That's a lot of angels. And he could have eliminated everything by the word of his power, just by speaking. Instead, he holds all things together by the word of his power. And he holds all things together. And in him, in him sustaining those very forces that murdered him, in Christ doing that, he's exalted. He's the name that's above all names, Philippians 2, the one in which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his 
resurrection, his exaltation, they are evidences to us that his condemnation achieved our eternal good. Paul says elsewhere that Christ was raised for our justification. We know we're justified. We know that Christ received, that God, that the Father received Christ's sacrifice because Christ came back to life eternally, right? But the resurrection of Christ, it could not have come apart from Him sustaining those who wickedly plotted His demise, yet they're fully responsible for their wickedness. How that harmonizes, I do not know. And Jesus, calling 12 legions of angels, if He would have done that, right? If that would have been the end of the story there, that would have meant our eternal damnation. That's what that would have meant. That's what Christ would have meant when he said, how then could the scripture be thus fulfilled? Right? This long-awaited for Messiah would not deliver what was promised if I don't sustain what's going on. What the enemy meant for evil, God in his sovereign eternal decree, praise God for this, meant it for good. Right? The glory of Christ our eternal good. So a few takeaways for us this morning, some of which are are more just questions that we should be asking ourselves. One is, what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? Who's painting his picture for you? Because the the answer to that reveals what's in your heart. It reveals what's shaping your worship. So that's a, a question for us to take with us. Secondly, let Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 and other passages, right, here's what we do about it, let that paint Christ's portrait for you. Let that paint His portrait for you. Three, remember those of us in Christ received the imperishable inheritance He earned in His humanity. Our inheritance is earned and secured in Jesus. And then fourth, There's no secular sacred divide, right? And we see that with the demons. Christ created all, he owns all, and he's exalted over all. So that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And God, I pray that you would help us, nourish us by it. Help us to be in awe of who you are. Continue to shape us and mold us into who you want us to be. Lord, motivate us as we... Stare at a portrait of Jesus with eyes of faith. Motivate us to put to death the deeds of our flesh, God. Help us to revel in Jesus and the imperishable inheritance that he earned for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.